welcome to the Preston Minster podcast. We want you to find your home, find your purpose and transform your city. really great to be with you um, and a big hello to everybody joining us online and at home um, and normally I feel I'm, the, I'm where you are I'm normally sat on the sofa or sat in the car playing the service through the intercom and it's just such a delight to, to be in the building with dear friends some faces that I don't recognize some people are here because you've come across Preston Minster online during lockdown you are particularly welcome to us this morning um, so I would love to start this morning Uh, furnishing your imagination with a story that I've heard this week that has just captivated me. Is that okay? So I'd like you to come back in time. It is BC 63 in a forgotten corner of the Roman world and we're stood outside a small city called Jerusalem and we're stood next to a famous guy who was a Roman statesman and general in the Roman army called Pompey the Great. He was also known as the teenage butcher. You don't need much imagination to work out why he was given that name. This guy is vicious, aggressive, a great strategist. And he had been told, as part of the Roman Empire, taking over the known world, to go and defeat Jerusalem. It was a center of a bunch of people who had the audacity, although they were a very small bunch of people in the world, they had the audacity to declare that their God Yahweh was the God not just of their region but of the entire universe. They needed defeating as the Roman Empire marched forward. So Pompey was sent with some troops and he thought this will be an easy victory. They're tiny. They have no power against the might of the Roman Empire. When he arrived he realized that actually the wall around Jerusalem was very thick And in the center of Jerusalem was a mount, and on the mount was a temple, and that looked pretty well um, built as well. So he thought, oh, it's going to take a while, and it did. It took three months of besieging the city before some of the Roman troops managed to sneak in a north gate and get into the the temple complex. And on one particular day, we're told in history, about 12,000 worshippers and priests were massacred on the steps of the temple by the Roman troops. But as the blood was flowing down the steps, the priests were still going about their morning and their evening sacrifice. Their devotion was so deep, was so rich. Their hunger for worship was so powerful that even though it was obvious that by the end of the day Jerusalem would be conquered they didn't flee they stayed and they worshipped and this really bemused the Roman soldiers who were used to people crumbling at the sight of them anyway they managed to get into the temple and Pompey the Great had heard tale of this very specific room in the center of the temple called the Holy of Holies surrounded by a thick curtain that once a year one person, only one person, a high priest, was ever allowed to go into this Holy of Holies. Because these people said that in this place was the very point where God touched earth. It was his pure presence and no one was allowed in there. And Pompey had heard tales of this. It was quite a legend in the region. And, and, and him and his soldiers were saying, what do you think's inside the Holy of Holies? And there was like legends going around at the time that maybe there was a Greek captive that they were keeping alive and fattening up so they could kill him and eat him. 
There was another legend going around that maybe inside was a golden ass's head or maybe a man with a big beard sat on a donkey. They had no idea what was inside. And Pompey had said to his troops on the morning of battle, when we defeat these people, you are not allowed in that holy of holies. I alone will step in and I will take this God down. And the tradition was that they would capture the king or they would capture the statues to the gods. And that would be the way of saying, we have defeated you. We've got your gods. We've got them. (laughs) You are now ours. You're part of the empire. So the day came to an end and Pompey the Great is stood outside the Holy of Holies, wondering what he's about to find inside. And he pulls back the curtain. And we're told in history that as he stepped in, he saw... Nothing. The Ark of the Covenant had been removed. There was absolutely nothing there. Just the stone plinth where the Ark of the Covenant would have been. If you want to go and Google it and find out more about the Ark of the Covenant. There was nothing there. It was completely empty. Nothing. I wonder what Pompey thought. Well, we don't know what he thought. Nobody wrote down his inner workings, but he obviously was so moved by this experience that when he came out of the Holy of Holies, his first command to his soldiers, which he'd never given any other time before, was do not remove any treasures from this temple and wash the blood and all the marks of battle off the steps. Something of being in that Holy of Holies where he could not grab hold of their God. He couldn't capture it and say, I've now got it. it, it kind of went through his fingers, moved him so profoundly that he actually appointed a new high priest to be serving in that temple. And as I heard that story, it really resonated with me because I thought, of course, Pompey, I could have told you that. I could have told you that when you go into the Holy of Holies, there'll be nothing there because the God that these people worship is my God and he cannot be contained within four walls. He cannot be limited to a statue or a bronze plinth. We can't say, oh, I know where God is. He's not there, but he's over there. Has that resonated with you during lockdown? Has that been a little bit of the journey you've been on? I remember the first day that we had to close the doors to services here and our hearts sank because we love being together. We love the good croissants and coffee that Preston Minster rocks up. We love the worship. We love hugging each other and being in each other's presence. And, but we also, I think, as we walked away, I remember thinking, but it's not going to be the same worshipping God at home because <laughs> that home is my home like the debris of my life is in my home I like to get away from my home and be somewhere else and I can really focus then on God and actually this for me has been such a wake up that God is no more here with us now than he is with our dear friends listening to this while you're sneakily making a coffee while your kids are watching Paw Patrol and you think, they shouldn't be watching Paw Patrol, they should be watching this service. Like God is with you wherever you are. My hope is that Pompey the Great somehow caught that when he stepped into the Holy of Holies, that this is the God who is not contained within four walls. 
God is always with us. There was a few weeks ago where um, I was really resonating with this. Like, God, I know that you're always with me. I know you are, but I'm just finding it difficult. My life feels so small right now. And I feel like I'm bumping into my grumpy self every time I walk around the house. And I read in a book that I was reading, an ancient theologian in the last century called A.W. Tozer said this, God's greatest desire and greatest delight is to bring you into his presence. Because there's nowhere that you are that God can't be. So God's greatest delight is to bring you into his presence wherever you are. And I was listening to it thinking, I believe this, I agree with it, but it hadn't like sunk into my heart. And it had been a really, really bad night, and I was awake very early. And I opened the curtains, and I watched the sun slowly rise. It was a brilliant sunrise, bright red, vivid across the sky. And as the sun rose, and I was thinking about that, God, your greatest delight is to bring me into your presence. It was like it kind of went home into my heart. As the sun is rising, as a new day is dawning, God, your first thought is that you delight to bring me into your presence. As you open your eyes in the morning, God's first thought over you is, I can't wait to bring her into my presence. I can't wait to bring him into my presence. And on the cross, we know that God dealt with everything that would ever get between us and him. And I think this is why in this series where we're looking at our favorite Psalms, I think this is why verses from Psalm 73 really resonate for me. Written by a poet in King David's, David's court. He would have been one of the worshippers, like Joe is here. Um, so about 200 years before Pompey the Great uh, besieged Jerusalem. But the same tradition. Ashraf is writing something about what it means to know that God is always with us and can draw us into his presence. What does it mean that God desires us and that can, he can stir within us a deep desire for him? And this psalm, for me, is one person's declaration in a time of chaos and upheaval that God longs for us. He longs for us. I'm not going to read the whole psalm to you because it's really long. And what I love about this psalm is that the first three quarters of it reads like a really angsty spoken word kind of stuff is really hard have you noticed that in the psalms like so much of it is raw kind of woe is me this is rubbish I'm not going to read that bit to you although I really encourage you to go away and get a translation that resonates with you and read psalm 73 but I'm going to read from verse 23 to verse 26 from psalm 73 and this is Ashraf the poet speaking Yet I am always with you, God. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And and earth has nothing I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, 
but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And in some translations, some um, interpretations of, of that, God is the strength of my heart. Some translations say, God is the rock in my heart. Not like a cold, unfeeling, unmoving rock, but like God is sturdy, the strength. His love is like a strength deep in my heart. There's three things really about this psalm that I, I suppose I, that really win me over, that I really speak my language. The first is that Ashraf is so real about how incredibly difficult it is to live in a time of chaos where order seems to have been flung out the window. If you read the beginning of Psalm 73, he's saying... Um, but why are the arrogant successful? And they're not in trouble, but those that are good are stricken. And he gets really upset that like good things happen to bad people and bad things don't seem to happen to bad people. <laughs> He's like, this is really unjust. This is really unfair. There's no order. It's all chaos. And he's really real about how painful it is to live at a time like that when nothing really seems to make sense. He's also really real about the dark places that this takes him in his own heart and mind. How angry he gets with the people. Then he realizes that the greed and the selfishness and the bitterness and the hate and the violence that he sees around him, he can also at times locate in his own heart. He's a little bit like me, bumping into himself around the house saying, oh God, how is it that you still like me, let alone love me? I've been nothing but horrible this last week. Like, the Ashraf is like, I see pain and destruction and chaos out there, and I see it in my heart too. Then the third thing that he's really real about is what happens when he takes his eyes off others and he takes his eyes off himself and he fixes his eyes on God. He is so real, it's so visceral for him, it's so like, I know this because I've had to do it, not I know this because I've read it. You know the difference? Like there are things that we know because we've read someone else talk about it. And there are other things that we know because we know, because we know, because we've been there and we've looked at it and we've felt those feelings. And Ashraf is saying, but I know that if I just spend my whole time looking out there, I'll just end up in despair. If I spend my whole time just looking in here, I'll just end up in despair. But if I get my eyes on God, if I worship him, if I say, God, you are the first appetite of my life. You are the great desire of my heart. And when I put seeking you first, then my life is transformed. Whom do I have in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. God's love will endure. And this clarity for Ashraf shapes his life. God seeking you, knowing you is my all, my priority, my focus. It's a bold confession, isn't it? I mean, this is truly radical living. Radical means not part of the mainstream. The mainstream at the moment says panic. You can't make any plans for anything. You know you think it's going to be worse, it's going to get even more worse. And there is truth in that. We as Christians can't be those that lock ourselves in buildings going, la, 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 everything's fine. But actually truly radical living is saying, yeah, that is true. 
things are difficult. When I look around, there is chaos. When I look in my heart, there is chaos. But that's not all there is. I have a God whose love for me and this world will endure through the Roman Empire's oppression of the world, through pandemics, pandemics through other empires. And this theme has been picked up really all throughout Christian history and probably in your own life too. A wonderful writer called C.S. Lewis who wrote those famous Narnia Chronicles, he says this, look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. I mean, Ashraf is writing before Christ walked the earth. Like, imagine what Ashraf would make of Jesus, God with us all the time. Like, C.S. Lewis is saying, if you look for Christ, you will find him, and you will find in him everything your heart desires. Philippians 3.8, another great writer, Paul, a public figure, a theologian, an early church planter, a radical man, said this, yes, all the things I once thought were so important, gone from my life compared to the high privilege of knowing Jesus. Everything I once thought I had going for me is insignificant. I've dumped it all in the trash so that I can embrace Christ and be embraced by him. And my mum's listening to this, and I'm sure my mum would sometimes sing this line. I don't know why I know this line. There's an ancient hymn that says this, take this world, but give me Jesus. Like our history, our heritage, our churches are full of people that know this, that know this, that actually I could be holding on to the stuff the world says will give you security and make sense of your life and will give you status and affirmation, or I can dare to lose that and say like the great exchange, just give me Jesus. And in Jesus, I have everything I've been doing a lot of, a <laughs> lot like you, a lot of life online during um, the lockdown. And um, I, I, there's a few voices that I tune into every now and then because they agitate me or they kind of annoy me or they inspire me. And one voice is Russell Brand. And he is a comedian. He's a public figure. And loads of the stuff that he says, he would never listen to this, so I can say it. Like, a lot of it is like gobbledygook. I don't quite understand it. But occasionally something comes out. I'm like, whoa, that's amazing. And I did meet him years ago on one of his uh, quiz shows when he was right in the, the midst of his addictive behaviors. And, uh, and so I'm always listening out to stuff that he says. Like I'm interested to know how people that don't yet know Jesus are making sense of these days. And, and Russell Brands, on a recent YouTube um, little film that he made, said something really profound. He said this about what is being revealed to us during this pandemic, about what matters most to us what we're prepared to lose and what we're prepared to give for what we think is really important. He says this, we all breathe the same air and we live on the same rock. Coronavirus has shown us that with rapid clarity. So what does this suggest to us about how we should organize our systems and our resources? My, my intuition, my experience, Russell says, is that the existing machines of dominance will go to great lengths to prevent that truth spreading across the globe. Imagine if we, as a bunch of people who tentatively, 
with all our hearts, but often full of doubts, follow Christ here in Preston. Imagine if our response went something like this. We breathe the same air and we live on the same rock. Coronavirus has shown us that with rapid clarity. So what does this truth suggest to us about how we should organize our systems and our resources? Well, our hope, our experience, lies in the truth that God's love will always endure. Whether we're sick or well, getting by or barely making ends meet, affirmed by our peers or ignored by most, we choose Jesus. And we choose to lose it all because Jesus is our all. We choose to be people who give it all because in Jesus, God gave us his all. And we choose to be people who risk it all because in Jesus, we've already found our home. Imagine the difference that would make in your own home, in your friendship group, in your families, in our communities, in a community in Preston that we know is on the brink of another really difficult time with unemployment and food poverty and all the things that go with it. With many, many students returning to UCLan, having to be in self-isolation for a couple of weeks. Many students who've stayed in Preston during the, the lockdown and have really struggled with food and basic needs. But imagine if, when they bumped into somebody from Preston Minster, they found somebody who is on the same rock, in the same boat, facing the same storm. But somehow our eyes are fixed differently. That we are prepared to give it all and to risk it all and to lose it all because in Christ we have it all. Back, back, back to Pompey the Great, and I'm ending here, James. So Pompey the Great then. We're told by historians that seven weeks after the conquer of Jerusalem, Pompey, this great Roman leader in command of the largest superpower of the time, was himself cut down and succeeded by Julius Caesar. And where is the Roman Empire now? Where are so many of the great powers and the superpowers and the forces that determine how life should be? Where are they now? Where will they be in 10, 50, 100, 1,000 years' time? The great truth in the psalm and the great truth that lies at the heart of us is that the Lord of hosts, who is worshipped here, who is worshipped in your home, in your heart, still reigns supreme and will always reign supreme. The one who calls himself your fortress and your strength, he will endure. And his love for you will never fail. And he will be faithful to you and his goodness will surround your life in this moment and tomorrow and next week and next month and next year for all eternity. That is why here we are a people that says, God, our thirst for you comes first. Above all else, these other things, these gifts that you give us of money and clothing and food and jobs and homes and all these gifts that you give us are nothing compared with you. And we want to be a people that desire you and in our desire for you are reckless and bold and radical in our love for this city. 
Thank you so much for listening to the Preston Minster podcast. We'll see you again soon.